Welcome everyone to worship this evening. Our call to worship comes from Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. John 10, 1 through 18. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is in hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father." So far, the reading of God's holy word. In the passage uh, before us this evening, 
Jesus is telling us a parable. A parable involving thieves and robbers, shepherds, sheep, porters, strangers, sheep pens, and doors. Some of these things, as we shall see, have a great significance. Others are used in this parable simply for the purpose of making the story understandable and relatable uh, to the audience. So therefore, because of this, we will not hear much about the porter. We will not hear much about the stranger. Because their role in this parable is to make the story flow, to make it more understandable. John Calvin actually speaks about this. He says, uh, those who scrutinize every part of this parable very, very closely are wasting their time. Let us be content with the general view that Christ likens the church to the sheepfold in which God assembles his people and compares himself to the door, since he is the only entrance into the church. He continues and says, It follows from this that they alone are good shepherds who lead men straight to Christ, and that they are truly gathered into God's fold and reckon his flock who give themselves up to Christ alone. John Calvin is saying here that the characters that really matter in this parable are the one that, ones that Jesus explains that he makes stand out. We can get caught up trying to figure out when we read these parables the hidden meaning behind some of the insignificant details of the parable. And by doing this, miss the intentioned teaching of Jesus. And what Jesus is doing in this parable, he's giving us what is called a pastoral parable. Now, when we, we think of pastoral, when I just said the word pastoral right now, most of us, I imagine, are thinking of a pastor. Thinking of someone, a pastor teaching in a church. However, if you look at the root of, of the word pastor or pastoral, it actually finds its roots in the raising and herding of animals, particularly, particularly sheep. And Jesus shows the subject here of, of sheep herding in this parable because it's a subject easily understood by his audience. Largely because sheep herding was a, a common occupation of, of that day. But also because sheep herding was a common theme in the Old Testament. Now I know you're familiar with Psalm 23, the shepherd there. But there also are, are many other examples in, in the Old Testament where the Lord uses pastoral figures, where he uses the idea of, of herding sheep to communicate to his people, to communicate his, his will to his people. Now, I can't mention them all here, but some notable ones to, to take note of are, are Psalm 80, verse 1, as well as Isaiah 40, verse 11. But here I'm also especially thinking of Ezekiel 34. 
It is perhaps this passage itself that the Lord Jesus is thinking about when he told this parable. Perhaps it was on his mind for what we read in Ezekiel 34, and I'm not going to read it here, follows a, a similar trajectory. At the beginning of the chapter, Ezekiel speaks of shepherds as being the religious leaders of his day. And he depicts them in very negative terms. He depicts them as only taking care of themselves. Ezekiel speaks of these shepherds of not caring for their sheep. Not seeking for people that are lost. He says they use cruel force. They, they scatter the sheep. They, they prey upon them. But then Ezekiel transitions in the second part of his chapter to speaking about the true shepherd, the Lord, who cares for his people. He says that the Lord cares for his people. He feeds them and he seeks out those sheep which are lost. And when Jesus tells his parable here in John 10, he follows a similar theme than we find in Ezekiel. He first speaks about those who would destroy the sheep before he goes on to speak about the shepherd. However, unlike Ezekiel, Jesus here sets his parable in a sheepfold or, or a sheep pen. The sheep are enclosed and protected within this pen and may only be accessed through a door. A porter or a doorkeeper guards the door and only the true shepherd can enter in or call his sheep out. And then, of course, actually Jesus mentions them first, there are the thieves and robbers that are, are climbing over the walls of the sheep pen to, to steal and kill the sheep. And what Jesus does in this parable is he contrasts these thieves and robbers with himself. He shows how his true sheep react to both his and their teachings. And Jesus teaches us in these verses that he is the door. He is the only way to enter into salvation and to live the Christian life. Salvation is found through Him alone. Our sermon this evening is titled, The Door in the Sheep Pen. And we will be looking at the thief who avoids the door. The shepherd who enters the door and the sheep that go in and out through the door. Recently, I purchased a, a used car, probably a couple years ago. And through ex what experience has taught me is that when you purchase a used vehicle, you, you often get things in the mail following the purchase of a used vehicle. Certain companies find out that you've purchased a vehicle and they send you letters warning you that your factory warranty has run out. Telling you that it's vital that you now purchase an extended warranty with them. It's a scam, of course. 
They pretend to be from one of the major auto manufacturers. They actually get as close to saying that as possible without actually saying it. Now, thankfully, I've never purchased one of these extended warranties, these fake warranties. But I'm sure that some people have, and I'm sure that as people have purchased these warranties, they've felt, they've breathed a sigh of relief, thinking that they're now safe, that they're, they're now covered should anything mechanically go wrong with their vehicle. This fake warranty that they've purchased gives them a peace of mind until, of course, something actually goes wrong with their vehicle. Until they call in or submit any claims to this fake warranty and find out it covers absolutely nothing. Now the reason I'm I'm bringing up this example is because The scam artists that sell these warranties in many ways are like the thieves and robbers in this parable. In many ways, they're false teachers that are preying on people, selling them false religion and doctrines, giving these people false hope, giving them a peace of mind when there there is really no peace there. And when something actually goes wrong in people's lives, when they listen to false teachers, when they face a crisis or they stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, they will find that this false religion, this false teaching that they've bought into provides no protection from the anger of God against sin. And here in John 10, in this parable, Jesus is pointing out that these thieves and robbers are false teachers, that in many ways they're, they're scam artists. He presents them as, as strangers, to the, strangers to the flock of sheep. He presents them as, as being evil shepherds, of attempting to deceive and seduce the sheep to follow them instead of following the shepherd. He tells us that they even climb the walls of the sheep pen to steal or or kill the sheep. What motivates these fake shepherds, these thieves and robbers, is, is their own gain. Is their hatred for the true shepherd, their their hatred for the care of his care for the sheep. And their hatred towards the sheep for their dedication to the true shepherd. And Jesus' point when he told this parable was to show his audience. Was to show his audience that in fact the religious leaders of his day were the thieves and robbers. They were the evil shepherds and false teachers. These Pharisees and Sadducees, these these scribes that taught the people, though they had the Old Testament, they did not teach the gospel to the people. They did not show the people the hope of salvation that they could find in a promised and now come Savior. They did not show them the promises that were found in the covenant of grace. 
Rather, these religious leaders, they put burdens of works righteousness upon the people. Through their invented rules of religion, they, they oppressed the people. And invented means from which they could bolster their own reputation and finances. They taught the people that they needed to follow the law of God in addition to all the rules that they, the Pharisees, invented. And only then there was the possibility that they would be accepted by God. And for some, this religious system of salvation by works gave some hope. Maybe for the self-righteous person. Much like the person who bought this fake insurance, these people had a vain hope. A hope that their good, day, their good deeds might outweigh their bad. That the sacrifices they brought and the money they paid at the temple would somehow erase all of their sins. And these religious leaders, these thieves and robbers... They brought the people of Israel into this bondage. They did not teach them the truth of Scripture. The truth clearly outlined by the law and prophets. And these religious leaders were responsible for the deception and damnation of the people, many of the people of Israel. In a sense, they stole the truth from the people. They killed the souls of the people. And this false religion was so prevalent in Jesus' day that Jesus even says in verse 8, He says here, All that came before me are thieves and robbers. Jesus here is referring to the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees that were standing before Him. And to the false messiahs that came prior to Him. These are the thieves and robbers turning the people's attention away from God's truth and towards false religion. As Jesus looked over the history of Israel, he could see the continual presence of or even domination of false teachers and messiahs. And it seems in his day, That with the exception of John the Baptist, not one faithful teacher remained in Israel. The members of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they did not realize the extent of their sinful condition. That it was impossible to earn God's favor through their works. Because these works are only filthy rags before the Lord. What they did is they turned the conviction of the law, the driving force of the law to the gospel into a how-to guide to earn God's favor. They ignored the gospel in the vain hope that they could earn salvation for themselves. Like the thieves and robbers, instead of following God's prescribed way of entering the sheep pen, they looked For shortcuts. Ways that were more appealing to the flesh. They climbed the walls seeking to enter the fold. And to steal and to murder the sheep. 
that are therein. And these leaders put unnecessary rules and burdens upon the people. Rules and burdens that had no connection to the gospel. But before we condemn these rulers, before we condemn these leaders for following after works righteousness, we too must realize that the same mentality, the same prevalence to move towards Salvation by works, to move towards self-righteousness is prevalent in our own hearts as well. We too have a a works-based spirit, a desire to earn favor with God rather than believing in and relying on the solution that he gave us. Like the thieves and robbers who tried to gain access to the sheep, So we try and do the same, looking for alternative ways to earn favor with God through our works. Yes, even us, good, reformed Christians who believe in the total depravity of man, who believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, we would never admit it. There is still, there is still something of a works righteousness attitude in us. And I say us here because I see it in myself. And one of the times when our hearts can unveil their legalist tendencies is when we are examining ourselves prior to the Lord's Supper. On the one hand, there are those of us who look at all of our sins and conclude there is no way that such a great sinner as me could be called to attend the supper. Viewing and looking only at our works, we rightly see that it's impossible for us to be saved and to be called to eat and drink with the Savior. But then there are those of us who look at ourselves and we like what we see. We conclude that our lives are in line with the conditions outlined to attend the Lord's table. After all, we are not like those people listed in the form. We're not a drunkard or an adulterer or a gambler. We have had the right religious experiences. We have made profession of faith. We even proclaim the misery of our sin. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. These, these aren't, those aren't bad things. We shouldn't be living outwardly sinful lives. We must experientially know the Lord. There must be profession of faith and, and hatred for sin. But we can never take the fruit of salvation and make it the foundation for our salvation. It is when these things become the basis of our salvation, the basis for attending the Lord's Supper, that we should begin to worry. To worry 
That we are beginning to buy into the teaching of the thieves. Beginning to buy into the teaching of the wolves that are outside the fold. The false teachers that are climbing over the wall, seeking to steal, seeking to to kill and destroy. These thieves and robbers, they seek to distract the sheep, the people of God. And they know how to do it quite well. They will shape their teaching so closely to resemble the true teaching. Except there will always be missing one necessary component. As we look in the parable, we see that the thieves and robbers avoid the door. They don't attempt to go through it. They may even mention the door. They may acknowledge its existence. They may even speak much about it and give it some prominence in their teaching. But they do not direct the sheep to go through the door. They do not teach the sheep that the door is the only way of salvation. But the shepherd of the sheep does this. He does teach that salvation is found in going through the door. True shepherds enter the door and lead their sheep out through the door. They have an intimate knowledge of the door and they point to and lead the sheep through this door. Here we see the stark difference between the shepherd and the thieves. The shepherd cares for the sheep. There is an individual and personal intimacy between the shepherd and his sheep. He calls his own sheep by name. And he leads his sheep out through the door. We see a shepherd who has little thought for himself. Yes, he does call the sheep by name and they know his voice, but he's directing the sheep's attention to the door. And he goes before the sheep, leading them to the door. Now the shepherd here, of course, ultimately refers to Jesus. And Jesus says, after all, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. We'll be looking at this on Sunday. Yet in this first section of the parable, the shepherd also refers to the religious leaders who are faithfully leading their people to Jesus Christ. However, as these shepherds uh, however, these, I would argue that these sheep do not ultimately follow these shepherds. But they recognize something of the greater shepherd in them. When these shepherds call and the sheep hear his voice, they are hearing the voice of their Savior. They are hearing the voice of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And ultimately, as we will see Sunday, the shepherd of these The shepherd that these sheep are following is Jesus Christ. It is he that calls the sheep. It is him that leads them to himself. He leads them to the door of the sheep pen. Jesus says of himself here, I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus Christ is the door. He is the only way of salvation. It is He as the Good Shepherd who's calling His people to come through the door. It is He who leads His people to salvation. Salvation that's only found in Him. Our greatest efforts, our most rigorous disciplines, our church attendance and adherence to tradition do not merit any aspect of salvation for us. For us to try and earn God's favor through our works is like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It's like trying to open or empty the ocean with a bucket. It's impossible to do. Yet we're always going back to it. I find myself doing it. And even as we prepare for communion this Sunday... Maybe we're falling again into this trap, somehow trying to make ourselves worthy. The figurative door to the Lord's Supper is only open through Jesus Christ. And it's He who is inviting His people to come and drink. To come and eat. To remember what he has done. He is the one who has made it possible. And so he is inviting his people to attend his supper. He made the impossible possible. He made it possible for rebellious and wicked sinners to be forgiven. For sinners to find life and restoration in him. He made this possible because He gave up Himself for us. He became us. He suffered and died for us. So that we could be brought into His sheepfold. He did this once for all. Sufficient for all people. And efficient for each of His people. Dear Christian, Jesus did this for you, with you in mind. And there's nothing that you did to earn this. There's nothing that you did to earn His love. There is nothing that you did to merit your salvation. Jesus, the door in this parable, He did it all. He is the way. Of salvation. He chose you. He lived for you. He died for you. His spirit regenerated you. Justified you. Is sanctifying you. And will glorify you. You have neither earned nor done enough. To gain any part. Of your salvation. You are a child of God simply because He called you to be His child. He set an open door before you and being regenerated, you walked through it into new life. 
And for those of you here who are not Christians, who are not saved, the Lord is coming again tonight. And he's setting this door himself before you. He's setting himself before you this evening, calling you to walk through this door by faith. And it's not your duty. It's not even your right at this point to try and discern whether this is an external or an internal call. The Lord is calling you now to believe in him. He's calling you now to throw yourself at his mercy, to bow your knees to him and cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Do not hold to this world. Do not hold so tightly to your sin. For when Jesus calls, he's he's calling sinners from death unto life. He makes this clear in verse 10 where he says, I am come that ye might have life. The truth is, if you're outside of Christ, you are in a state of death, a state of spiritual death you you are not truly alive now i know some of you are familiar with extreme sports these are sports that usually guarantee a participant will at one point experience an injury of some kind then there is what i'm going to call extreme extreme sports These are are sports in which there is a significant risk of death. These include sports such as free diving, base jumping, wingsuit flying, and something called free solo. Basically, these are extremely dangerous ways to dive underwater, to climb mountains, or to skydive. Now, if you're like me, you may wonder why people participate in these sports, especially if there's a good chance that you will be killed. And the reason people do this is so that they get an adrenaline rush. The reason they do this is so that they can feel alive. That's what they say. They do these sports to feel alive for a moment. There's a fleeting feeling, a feeling that quickly dissipates where they feel alive and energized. And to keep this up, they have to keep doing more dangerous and dangerous things to get the same rush, the same feeling of being alive. They're looking for meaning in their life, a reason to be alive. But here we have Jesus Christ. He offers us this meaning. He offers us life. I have come that they might have life. He came so that we might have life. He offered 
up himself and took death upon himself so that we might have life. And as he says here, so that we might have it more abundantly. He doesn't offer us a fleeting feeling of being alive, but he offers us real life. He offers us a living hope and eternal life. Christ gives his people life, eternal life, but he also provides grace and light and life for each day. He speaks about this in this parable. He says, By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. He says that if any man believes in him, he will be saved. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds to this and says, and shall go in and out and find pasture. According to commentators, going in and out refers to the daily life of the sheep, the routines of their day. The sheep go in and out through the door every day They're going through the door, perhaps multiple times. There are those who believe that a person only needs the gospel once. When they first believe. They think, well, I've believed. My sins are forgiven. And I'm on my way to heaven, therefore I no longer need the gospel. I I no longer need to hear about what Jesus did for sinners. But this parable shows us something different. It shows the sheep, the Christians' daily need for Christ and the gospel. It shows us, this parable shows us the reality that we need to find our life in Christ, not only once, but continually. We need to go to the door continually. Our hope of salvation is daily found in our Savior. The Christian should never tire of the gospel. We should never tire of the old, old story of Jesus and his love. In fact, we need it every single day. Because if we don't cling to Christ, if if we are not daily living out of Him, we soon start going back to our old habits of trying to make ourselves righteous. We start to believe what the thieves and robbers are saying over the wall to us. We start trying to find life in other things besides in Jesus Christ. We again vainly begin to seek to give ourselves life through our works. And this leads us into darkness and into bondage. But we have a great shepherd. We have a shepherd who knows each of his people by name. A shepherd who calls back wandering sheep. A shepherd who calls his sheep to himself so that they are not killed. So that they are not destroyed. 
Jesus Christ preserves his people. He keeps them near to him. He doesn't allow thieves and robbers to take them from him. He doesn't allow thieves and robbers to kill or destroy them. He makes it very clear in this parable. He has made it so that his people only know his voice. And they will not follow the voice of strangers. Though they hear the voice of thieves and false shepherds. Yet by God's grace they do not heed these voices. They do not follow these false shepherds but flee from them. Jesus protects the hearts and minds of his people. And so, dear Christian, he will never let you fall. He will never let you be deceived. Though thieves and robbers try to get you, though wolves come dressed in sheep clothing, though false prophets and false Christ arise and show great signs and wonders, yet the Lord will never leave nor forsake his elect people. He keeps his people near him. They daily go in and out through the door and he leads them to find pasture. They find life in Christ. And as we grow in grace and as we increase in our gospel understanding, so we find life more abundantly. And in a sense, this Sunday, the Lord Jesus Christ is leading his people out to pasture. He is coming to us and he's pointing us to himself. He's telling us to throw aside all of our self-righteousness and to focus on him, the only way, who is the true way of salvation, who is the only one who gives us life. And Jesus Christ is calling you, dear child of God, Not because you have earned it. Not because you have done anything worthy. But he's calling you to eat with him. Because of him. He is calling you to come to the table this Sunday to remember what he has done for you. He's reminding you of his great love for you. A love you don't deserve. A love you haven't earned in any way. but an amazing love that He freely gives to you. Therefore, dear believer, as you prepare for the Lord's Supper, stop trying to find anything within yourself that qualifies you to attend. There's nothing. He has all the qualifications you need. He is everything and has everything you will ever need. So therefore, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you need Him, if you depend on Him for forgiveness, for restoration, for life, you are invited by Him to come and remember what He's done for you. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you do not need him and depend on him for your salvation, if you think that you can come to the table because you're qualified, because you live the right life, because you're a good Christian, because you've had the right experiences, because you know the right doctrine, I must warn you that unless it is for and because of Jesus Christ, that you come to the table, you are coming for the wrong reason. But to all of you that need, to all of you that love and believe in the Son of God for your salvation, the table this Sunday is wide open for you. Jesus invites you to come dine with him. Amen. Our faithful and glorious Lord in heaven. Lord, we pray that that would work wondrously in our congregation. That thou would prepare the hearts of thy people. For this coming Sunday. That they would know that thou dost desire to, to sup with them. And that, O oh Lord, we would not set up false conditions of our own merits. But we would find all of our hope and all of our reason for salvation in thee, dear Lord Jesus that we would be focused on Thee, remembering what Thou hast done for us, remembering Thy great mercy which continues to this day. So, Lord, bless us in this night, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.